Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, welcome along to the Rocky Road Boxing Podcast with me, your host, Kevin Byrne. Our guest today has been writing about the fight business for more than 50 years and is known as the voice of boxing. Colin Hart was inducted into the International Boxing Hall of Fame in 2013, and till this day is still writing insightful columns for The Sun. In a recent article, he reflected on Tyson Fury's second victory over Deontay Wilder in Las Vegas, ranking the fight at number six in his all-time heavyweight classics. He was at the other five, I believe, from Madison Square Garden to Kinshasa to Manila to Tokyo. So Colin, without further ado, welcome to the show. It's my pleasure. I'm glad to be with you. And I can talk boxing all day and all night. Well, so can we. And uh, it's delight- delighted to have you. Just to immediately reflect on the Fury Wilder uh, third fight, it was, it was a bit of a classic. Did, did, are you the sort of person who stays up late sets the, or sets the alarm or watches the next day? Yeah, I mean, it was um, one of the most exciting heavyweight fights I've seen. But I had to put it in perspective. You know, Fury and Wilder had three memorable fights. Each one, in his own terms, was you'll not forget for different reasons. And you know, let's talk about the trilogy, which I did uh, set my alarm and go up and watch it live as it happened. And it was wildly exciting. Um, uh, but when I say I had to put it in perspective, you know, Wilder, Apart from the dynamite in his right hand, was a very ordinary fighter. And the reason I relegated that fight to number six, you've got to compare it with the class of the heavyweights that I saw live at Ringside. I mean, Ali Frazier, you know, uh, a level above Wilder and Fury. And they, the, the two fights out of the three were Phenomenal. The first one was the first fight I covered in New York. Uh, in fact, it was the first fight I covered in America. It was in March 1971, and it was a classic of its kind. The first time two undefeated fighters had fought the heavyweight championship of the world. The atmosphere in the Golden that night was virtually indescribable. The excitement was so intense. And two men actually died of heart attacks before the opening bell. I mean, that's the sort of atmosphere we were involved in. I mean, it, you know, it's a cliche that the atmosphere was electric. I mean, you, you, you've got a very, you know, it's like if you touch the surface of the table in front of you, you get a shock. And every celebrity and leading politician who was in New York that night was ringside. So that was a brilliant 15-round fight. And only, of course, a comeback of three years of uh, you know, being out of the ring because of his stand over there and having his 
title taken from him. So he was, that was my number one because of the quality of the two fighters. Number two was their third fight in Manila. And it was memorable for a completely different reason because it was the most brutal heavyweight championship of all time. I'm not the only one who said that. It's been written by other people. And the reason was sad, really. They were both way past their best, and they simply couldn't get out of the way of each other's punches. So they stood there until uh, Frazier was retired by Eddie Gosh. For 14 rounds, literally punching each other to a standstill. They were both totally exhausted and that fight was stopped. But, you know, anybody who's seen it, either who was there or seen it on YouTube, will shake their heads and wonder that those two men could have stood up to that kind of punishment for so long. And that was the occasion, of course, when Arnie said at the end of it, that's the nearest I came to dying. What was it? What was it like in Manila at the time? Uh, what was the political atmosphere? I know Ali. Ali had his own kind of uh, well, domestic, the, domestic the, business on show. The atmosphere in Manila was very strange because uh, President Marcos had declared a curfew, and we weren't allowed out of our hotels after midnight. If you were caught on the streets after midnight, whoever you were, you ended up in jail spent the night in the cell. So uh, we were all on our very best behavior while we were there. But of course, Ali had taken his mistress, a showgirl, Veronica, who became his third wife, to Manila before his wife, Melinda, arrived. And Marcos had a reception at a presidential palace and invited Ali, obviously, and Ali turned up with Veronica. And as you know, Marcos's wife was a former beauty queen, Isabelda Marcos, the woman who bought a thousand pair of shoes. Anyway, um, Marcos swore Ali and Veronica and assumed that Veronica was his wife. And he said to uh, Ali, you have a very beautiful wife. Ali did not say she is not my wife. He just thanked Marcos and said, you also have a beautiful wife. What well, I didn't know, Peter Bonaventura, a reporter for Newsweek magazine, heard the conversation, and he reported it in Newsweek. And on the plane coming over from New York, from America, she actually got in the plane in San Francisco to Manila. Belinda read Newsweek and read about this incident. And she was steaming when she got to Manila. Uh, and we were, one of us, one or two of us were tipped off by Ferdy Pacheco, Arnie's daughter, hang around the hotel because the proverbial was going to hit the fan when Belinda arrived. Yeah. And when she did arrive, she went up to the penthouse suite and she stayed there an hour or two and came down and went straight back to the airport and took the plane back to America. And Pacheco told us that she physically attacked, attacked uh, Arlie when she got in the suite, tore down the drapes, scratched his face, and that was the end of their marriage. Wow. 
uh, because she divorced him after that. So all this was going on behind the scenes. And, you know, when you talk about fighters having pressure, outside pressure, only Ali would have got through that week unfazed by his domestic problems. Yeah. <laughs> so were, were the press pack um, a little bit miffed at the Newsweek reporter putting it out there? Because I suppose you're there to cover a fight and the boxing press have a job to do. Well, and, and this I, kind of I maybe could. verged on a more personal. Are you going to ask me whether I reported it? Probably not. But I mean, he was an American working for, I mean, the, the major American magazine. Um, so maybe he had no conscience about it. Um, no, I mean, I would have realized that I may have ended a marriage by reporting it. I'm not saying I would have done, and I'm not saying I wouldn't. Unfortunately, I didn't have the problem. But I like to think I would have uh, let it go in one ear and out the other. Maybe as a journalist, I would have been wrong. I guess one of the, the, the beautiful things about covering Muhammad Ali is the access you get to this man, this incredible human being who stood up for human rights and who has such a blazing personality. And to cover his fights, you know, because you started off uh, you were saying as a quotes, getting quotes while he was visiting London for fights. And, you know, you you weren't necessarily the boxing correspondent, but you were up against, you know, you met him, you talked yeah. to him, he was electric. It was Maybe 1963 when he was 21, when he came over for that first Cooper fight at Wembley Stadium. You know, there's a world of my I feel sorry for my young colleagues who are writing about boxing today. It's a completely different business when I was covering the major fights because we had virtually total access to these guys. Very quick example, uh, we were in uh, Los Angeles on our way from Las Vegas to the East Coast to cover John Conti's fight and David Green's fight um, on the East Coast. Conti was fighting in uh, Atlantic City and um, Green was fighting Leonard in Maryland, land over Maryland, that's outside Washington, D.C. So we were lying around the pool, had a few, two or three days arm and arm, lying around the pool in LA before we went east. And we were bored, as journalists get very quickly, get very bored. And somebody said, let's phone Ali, see if he's in town. Now we all had Ali's home phone number. Anthony Joshua was heavyweight champion of the world until recently. I don't think there's a single boxing writer, and I certainly am one of them, who had not got Anthony Joshua's mobile number. His people who run him would not allow it. They're terrified if we had total access to these guys. They control them from the moment they get up to the moment they go to bed. They're all corporate. And anyway, it was Jim Rosenthal, who was then BBC Radio, who we got to phone Arnie early, because he got up really early. And he phoned him at 7.30 in the morning. And Arnie, he said, you British guys in town, come round now. And there were suits of us. And we jumped into two taxis, 8 o'clock in the morning, and went to his gated community off Wilshire Boulevard, and he told the security guys to inspect us, and he stood waiting 
on the steps of his mansion for us to arrive, dressed in his usual uniform in those days, black boots, black slacks, black shirt. He was absolutely thrilled to bits that we were there to see him. He took us in the house, he gave us a tour of the place, took us to his trophy room, did his magic tricks in his study, and we spent the whole morning with him. Yeah. That's the difference between then and now. I mean, we couldn't do it with Tyson, but we could do it with Ali. I guess maybe one of the differences uh, now, reporter, like if media people went along to Muhammad Ali's house, they wouldn't. Ne- they wouldn't necessarily be there. Maybe would it? Did you guys bring notepads, for instance? Did you write about your day, or was it strictly this is this is our oh, or continue? I mean, I wrote dreams about it. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you won't. People say to me when I tell them this story, "You're exaggerating." Typical journalist. We don't believe half of it, you know, because it's unbelievable. He actually took us along this on the first floor. There was a sort of gallery, and we were all in single file. He was like the pine pipe of Hamlet. We were all lined up behind him, and he went, went to a big old door at the end of this gallery, turned around, and went. He opened the door, stuck his head in, and we didn't know what he was doing. He was talking to Veronica, who by this time he'd married, and told her to get out of bed because he was bringing in the British press to look at the master bedroom. Yeah. Now, people say, oh, come on, I'm telling you. It was what he was like. That was Ali. Yeah, I guess I guess I was wondering maybe about, are you worried when Newsweek's, uh, when Newsweek report on that story? Because that, that incredible access that you get to Ali could now be threatened. He might see the danger of having press up close and personal and, well, and it's pull, a different pull back. It's a different world, Kevin. I mean, for one thing, uh, now we've had about 24 security guards, yeah, uh, guarding the, uh, guarding wherever we went. I mean, it's a different world. Um, I remember being away. I was lucky yeah. enough, uh, well, I consider the best of it. Um, I remember being away with the, uh, most of the British press pack for Tyson Fury's fight with uh, Vladimir Klitschko in Dusseldorf 2015. Right. And if you recall on the, in the Sunday newspapers, the, uh, so six days before the fight, Tyson Fury gave a big exclusive interview to the Daily Mail. I think it was Oliver Holt wrote the story and he got in a lot of trouble for it, for kind of bringing kind of gay people and, you know, making, making comments about pedophilia. And Tyson was in a big, yeah. kind of on a big Christian crusade at the time. And he was, he was talking all sorts of nonsense, really. Oh, yes. He went through a very, very bad period in his mm-hmm. life. Um, and I remember the, the British press back were quite rattled about it because to touch upon this subject, they knew that Fury could, you know, kill the access there and then. And it was nearly like, oh, don't poke the bear here. You know, there was almost that sort of feeling from it. He's learned a few lessons since then. Mm. And uh, although you never know what he's going to do next, you never know what's going to come out of his mouth next. He seems to realize that certain things even, you know, they dance, say or shouldn't say. And uh, he's learned a lesson. And, uh, you know, he can be very amusing, as you know. He can be very funny. Mm. Uh, and he's a, you know, he's a remarkable personality. And uh, one thing I find remarkable about him is his powers of recovery when he gets hit and hurt, when he gets hurt. 
I mean, that Wilder literally could knock holes in walls. And I know he's gone. The first time, no one knows. He, he doesn't know how he got up in that uh, last round um, when uh, he was thrown by that right hand. And, of course, in his last fight, he got up twice in one round. And being hit by Wilder, you know, it, it can't be fun. I think Fury is probably the most dangerous boxer in the world to, to knock down because I was ringside at a couple of his early fights when he was hurt. I wasn't at the Cunningham fight, but Steve Cunningham knocked him down. Yeah. And he, he ripped him apart in the, in the following rounds. And uh, a, a guy called Nevin Padgett, a Canadian champion, knocked him down. Yeah. And well, Fury came back. Yeah. Really? yeah. That's right, yeah. And uh, another guy, Nikolai Furta, came to Belfast. And he didn't knock him down, but he, he had Fury really hurt against the ropes. And then Fury kind of broke out the the, the inner demon. And well, what, he, he finds a way to win, doesn't he? Yeah. So when Wilder hurt him twice in the fourth, it's kind of like yeah, it reminds me of have you seen that the Scorsese movie Casino? He's talking about he's talking about Joe Pesci's character Nicky. If you come after him with a knife, you know if you if he comes after you with a knife, you better get a gun. And if he comes with a gun, you better make sure you kill him because he's gonna keep coming and coming and coming. And Fury kind of reminds you of that. Colin, we'll we'll address the list. So we've gone to number one. Ali Fraser, March 1971 in New York City, uh, the fight of the century. Number two was Ali versus Joe Fraser, three, the thriller in Manila, 1975. Uh, if only both boxers had kind of hung up the gloves then, we might be talking about well, different... Like mm. I mean, that's uh, when... Uh, I think fight with Shaco went one more fight with Ali when he fought Shakers. And after the Shakers fight... Ferdy couldn't take it anymore. He knew that uh, Ali was going to be in serious trouble in later life. Um, I'm not just talking about maybe in Parkinson's, but, you know, as you know, the, the punishment we took. It wasn't only the punishment we took in the rings. If you went to his gym, and don't forget, uh, he used to have a lot of people in there watching, members of the public, and he liked to show off. And he'd put his arms up and allow the sparring partners to beat on him, you know. To, and of course, it was sheer comedy. And it, it had a big effect on his uh, physicality. And it was all those years in the gym, as well as in the ring, that I, I believe caused his, uh, his problems, yeah. exacerbated his Parkinson's syndrome. And his sparring yeah. partners weren't just anybody either. You had the likes of Larry Holmes in there as well. Future world champions, plenty of them. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, Larry Holmes is, in my opinion, arguably the third or best fourth heavyweight of all time. He was a brilliant, brilliant fighter. He held the title, you know, seven years. At uh, number three in your list, uh, Riddick Bowe versus Evander Holyfield. I think it was the first fight of their trilogy. November 1992 in Las Vegas, uh, yeah. that 10th round. So that, that one stood out. You, you, were at, you were at that fight as well. Yeah. Did the sun generally send you to that, all the big heavyweight championship that, fights? I was ringside for the first five I picked. The other one I wasn't a ringside for was Fury. And mm. you know, people forget I retired as boxing correspondent when I reached retirement age in the year 2000. Um, and since then, I've been writing this regular column for 21 years um, for the Sun. 
But I was forced to retire because in those days, it was the law. You had to retire at 65. So that's why I didn't, you know, today I could have continued, but I had to go. And um, anyway, the paper, I'm glad to say, said, well, we don't want to lose you completely. Would you rather support regularly, which I was more than happy to do. I'm still doing it. Well, great days, like when there's a big heavyweight fight. Uh, Colin, we've got your tickets for Las Vegas. You're staying at, you're probably staying at a decent, a decent hotel, I would say, with a nice expense account. The great days. I used to stay always at Caesar's Palace. I never stayed at the five hotels, unless the five hotel was Caesar's. I mean, a lot of them were at the MGM Grand, you know, the, uh, the arena there, the Garden Arena. And that used to be the five hotel. I always stayed. Uh, at Caesars. Um, anyway, that, that first fight, um, was, it was from first bell to last. It was just a magnificent exhibition of boxing at its best among heavyweight fighters, boxing at its best, great courage. And the 10th round, arguably, is the greatest single round in heavyweight boxing. I mean, I, how can you prove things like that? But the consensus of all the boxing minders who were there said they could never have been a better single round than that. Yeah, no, and Holyfield like was in so many thrilling fights as well. I, I assume you made it over to the two Mike Tyson fights as well, like the, you know, concluding in the, the bite fight. Yeah, I was at both his fights with Tyson, and of course, uh, when he uh, chewed his ear off, I couldn't believe what I was watching. Uh, I actually saw him spit the top of his ear out onto the canvas. And, uh, I mean, I went to the dressing room, I went to two sides of the dressing room. One of the uh, men in the ring had dropped in the palm of his hand to take the oil. They attempted to throw it back on, you know, in the hospital. Then the tip of his ear. And, incredible. Uh, incredible. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say there was well, a lot of disgusting. I, 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 um, I mean, I was so angry because, oh, I, I'm a boxing writer, but I'm also a boxing lover. And I grew up in London's East End, which, you know, they say is, is, is the hope of boxing. And, um, you know, it upset me that somebody should act like that in the ring. And so when it came to write my piece, I said he should be banned for life. That's the way I felt at the time. And of course, he got, as you know, banned for uh, a year. Um, and I reflected, I said, oh, well, um, maybe I shouldn't have been so hasty and say he should have been banned for life. But anyway, he was banned and he was fined $3 million for it. So, um, and obviously, he pulled on after that. And, uh, Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I was going to say Mike Tyson finished up against an Irish guy, Kevin McBride, but he was, he was back last year in an exhibition with uh, Roy Jones Jr., although I don't know how seriously oh. we're going to take that. Like Just like Evander Holyfield was back in the ring recently. I, I mean, I do. Do you know what? I haven't watched it. I know it's unavailable to watch on YouTube. I can't bear to watch it to see Holyfield at 58 put on the floor. <laughs> you know, it's, it's so sad because, let's face it, he's broke. There's only one reason why he's doing it. Um, he might say otherwise. I mean, uh, I he's, the, he's the first person ever for this podcast. And we have 60 plus episodes at this stage. And he's the first person ever who asked for, for a payment. So I, re- I contacted his representatives, looked from Tomorrow, and it was, how much are you going to pay? That was the question. That, that, that says it all. Um, now, why is he broke? Well, he has 11 children by various women. I think he's about four mothers. Now, that's a lot of money to pay out in child support and all of uh, And also, he had that ridiculous 21-room mansion he built. I mean, who needs 21 rooms? Uh, but, you know, that's the sort of thing they do. Yeah, uh, most, most of us are just happy with the 15 and leave it at that. I mean, actually, when I think about it, he probably thought he'd end up with one room for every child. <laughs> You're doing well, yeah. You'd have to move George Foreman in with his brood and uh, they could combine, you know. So we'll get to number four on the list and it's the famous Rumble in the Jungle, October yeah. 1974. George Foreman, the champion against Muhammad Ali. A hopeless case. He didn't stand a chance, did he? Well, um, I'm going to do a bit of boasting here. I tipped Ali to beat him. And um, people, you know, I mean... There was a very good reason for it, and I didn't write it until I had talked to uh, a guy called Bob Walters, a highly respected boxing writer with Newsday, the newspaper in New Jersey, just outside of New York. And uh, I had this thing about Foreman. I regarded him as a bully, and I regarded him as having a stamina problem. He was so big, so muscular. And I thought, who's ever knocked Ali out? If he can survive that left hook from Frazier in the first fight, who's going to knock him out? And of course, everybody thought Foreman would not only knock him out. There was a fear, a genuine fear, that Ali would either end up in hospital or worse. Uh, he was 32 against this unbeaten monster uh, who was the most frightening heavyweight seen since Sonny Liston. Anyway, um, I had this thing in my brain and I was having a drink with Bob Walters at the bar in uh, Kinshasa. And we were talking about the fight, which was about three days' time. And I said, Bob, you'll probably think I'm mad, but I think I'm going to tip Bali to me. He said, you're not mad because I'm going to. And I said, why are you going to? And so what makes you think that? And he told me that he was covering Foreman and Greg Peralta, who was an Argentine light heavyweight. 
they built, tried to build up the heavyweight. He was fighting Paul and over 10 rounds of a long title fight. And he was in Los Angeles or certainly in California. At the end of the ninth round, Foreman was so exhausted, he didn't want to go out with the tenth. They had to shove him out. It wasn't that he was trying to go out. He just couldn't lift his arms. His legs wouldn't seem to work. And I said, well, you've convinced me, Bob, to do it. And I tipped him to win in nine rounds. And as you know, the fight was stopped in the eighth. And my boss, Frank Nicklin, the sports editor, sent me a cable. And I thought it was a hero grant. And when I opened it the next day, all he said was, my wrong round. <laughs> yeah. And that was Nick's way of saying, don't get rid of it, son. Keep your feet on the ground. All right, you got lucky this time. So, you know, I wasn't surprised when Ali beat him. And I must admit, I did something very, very unprofessional, which I was ashamed of immediately afterwards. I'd never done it before. And I've certainly uh, done it since. I hate when they... When he got counted out, I actually leapt out of my seat, punched the air, because I was vindicated of people, you know, ready to go at me saying you're crazy. And also because Harley had won the title break at 32 years of age. But the whole situation in Isaiah was bizarre. I mean, uh, we used to send out reports back to our various newspapers by tenants. And the Bhutu president of Zaire was one of the most notorious and brutal dictators that ever been. I mean, he used to have his, uh, you know, the dissidents executed in the stadium where the fight was held. In the bowels of the stadium, there was a wall. He used to line up the dissidents and shoot them. And there was all bullet holes in the walls where this thing used to take place. Anyway, um, you, you, stayed, you stayed there as well, Colin, didn't you? Because when you got off the plane, you heard one of the first things you heard was fights over, lads, fights off. Well, what happened? We, we arrived in uh, Kinshasa and we had to take a uh, bus, a coach from Kinshasa to Nseli, where the fighters were training, 30 miles outside the capital. And uh, we, yeah, if, if I may say so, the flight on Air's Air was not the most pleasant I'd ever taken. And we got to, uh, to Vincelli, um, and about, I can't remember what time it was, it was like six, seven in the morning. No, it must it was a bit later than that. Excuse me, it was breakfast time. And standing at the main entrance to this train was Larry Merchant, who was then Sports editor of the Philadelphia Daily News, who became very famous as an HBO boxing commentator years later. And as we got off, trooped off the uh, bus, about 20 British writers, Larry said, Buy off, guys. And you, know, you hear that all the time. Say, oh, yeah, you know, I'll Larry. But the fight was off because Foreman had got cut in sparring, and the fight was put back six weeks. So we had to go back to London and went back. But um, if I may just go back to how we took how we pulled back to London by telex. And the only problem was the telex operators were used to be asleep and they shouldn't have been working. And we complained to the press chief 
who went by the magnificent name of Shimpumpu Wa Shimpumpu. And we complained, the international press complained. And it got to the ears of Mobutu, because as you know, it was a government operation to put Zaire on the map, yeah. along with Don King. And um, Mobutu got to hear of this, and he put out an edict which said very simply, in, of course, I don't know whether it was in the local language or in French, which they spoke in Zaire, the next talents operator who's found asleep when he should, should be on duty will be shot. Can you imagine that in the mind? So there they all were from that moment on, beavering away non-stop. But very often they send reports to the wrong place. And Neil Allen, bless him, the late Neil Allen, who was a great boxing writer for the Times, his preview of the Ali Frazier, Ali Frazier sorry, Ali Fulman fight in Zaire ended up in a Cambridgeshire woodyard, all 2,000 years, words of it, coming up their telex machine. What the hell is it? Yeah, I can only imagine the panic back in the, uh, the office in London, you know, waiting for the copy and <laughs> it, do- it doesn't arrive. Well, you know, um, this line of news, Ben BBC Radio, I mean, he, he went the first time. Uh, because, um, and he couldn't get the line back to London, to the BBC. And so he now came back the second line. He thought it'd be a futile operation trying to get his report back. Well, yeah. Anyway, um, I'd, I'd say there was as much, uh, there was as many kind of egos at ringside and different kind of interests and personalities as there was within the ropes and even in the, the teams, like, because you didn't have, didn't George Foreman have Archie Moore there? And was Sandy Sadler part of his group? And You're absolutely right. Archie Moore and Sandy Sadler uh, were part of his training team. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad to say that, I mean, I knew, got to know Archie Moore quite well in that trip. And, you know, Archie loved playing table tennis. And although he was an old man, he was pretty good, and I played him at the Intercontinental Hotel uh, in Kinshasa. I gave him a game. Well, I didn't give him a game. I played against him, and he just wiped the ball with me. Um, but uh, yeah. Um, but how many? How many like hacks came from all over the world? Didn't they? Like, uh, well, no. They great when you say hacks. They were special hacks. Mm. Um, I mean, that is a term of endearment. Uh, in George Plimpton, uh, Norman Mailer, and Bob Chilko. And they were all there for their respective... Uh, well, actually, Mailer was there for Esquire magazine. And he wrote a very... Um, he wrote a 10,000-word book there about the fight, just simply called The Fight. If you haven't seen it, Kevin, you can get a copy of it. Um, you got it. There you go. We're on Zoom, but uh, I'm showing I'm that's showing good. Colin Hart my copy of uh, Norman yeah, Mailer, The Fight. Yeah, that's it. Anyway, we used to drink in the casino in the evening. And um, I mean, I knew Bud. Uh, I didn't know Mailer. And I didn't know George Clinton, but I knew Bud Schumer quite well. Um, yeah, Bud was a wonderful one, you know, on the water front and um, the harder they fall. I mean, can you see uh, behind me on my wall, Colin, from where you're sitting? Oh, there you go. Yeah, that's it. 
And, and of course, that was really about Carl Ingram. Mm. That that was uh, really anyway. Um, a lot of people don't know that Bud Schulberg, his father, was the boss of Paramount Pictures, and Bud's uh, godfather was Charlie Chaplin. I mean, I love this trivia. Is by the way, but nevertheless, it gives you an idea. Endlessly interesting, Colin. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, I, I can imagine the uh, the just the feeling of anticipation in Kinshasa as. I think yeah. the fight takes place in the middle of the night, doesn't it, as well? Like, oh, you know, um, in Caracas, in uh, Venezuela, is it? March 1974. I know that because my younger daughter was born while I was covering a fight in Caracas. And there's a difference between then and now. You won't find any journalists covering the fight Four and a half thousand miles from home, his wife had a baby back home. He would have the paternity leave, he'll be at the bedside, all that. If I'd have said to my boss, I can't cover the fire because my wife's having the baby, he would say, She's had a baby before. I said, Yeah, he would say, Well, tell her to do it again. (laughs) It was a different world in those days. So, anyway. Well, had 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 most journalists now said the same to their wives, they probably would have ended up with a worse fate than Muhammad Ali when confronted by his wife in Manila. You know, if you say oh, that now. Exactly. Um, anyway, we were in uh, Caracas for the Pullman Norton fight, and the first time I met Don King, strange man with his hair sticking up here. Um, anyway, King on the eve of the Norton Pullman fight held a press conference, and there's three or four very strange-looking African gentlemen in Chinese-type tunics sitting on with him at the top table. And King, the press conference was because King announced that Pullman, after the Northern fight, so it was assumed that Pullman was going to dispose of Norton very easily, which he did in two rounds. Former's next defense would be against Muhammad Ali in Kinshasa Zaire. We're all looking at that. Uh, and first bell will be 4 a.m. in the morning. Well, I nearly fell off my chair laughing, thinking, who is this con? And now I'm Four o'clock in the morning. Is it crazy? Eight months later, there we were, ringside, four o'clock in the morning in Kinshasa, covering Holly. Yeah, unforgettable night, no doubt. We'll move to number five, Colin, um, a different continent. You find yourself in Japan, February 1990, Tokyo, the unbeatable, terrifying, frightening heavyweight Mike Tyson from. Brownsville, yeah. New York. Well, of course, we didn't. We didn't realize, Kevin, that he was no longer as terrifying as he used to be. Uh, there were many reasons for that. Uh, he was having tremendous domestic problems with Robin Gibbons. He wasn't training. I mean, Douglas was quoted, as you know, 42 to 1 in that fight. And Tyson thought, I'll wipe him away in no time for that. He hardly trained. He actually 
although we didn't see it, it was behind closed doors, and they tried to cover it up. He was actually knocked down by Greg Page in training, um, in sparring. So even so, none of us gave Douglas a chance. And I remember going with my British colleagues to see Douglas in his hotel room. He didn't have a suite. <laughs> you know, he was just the challenger um, and fought up for Tyson as everybody thought. Anyway, when we were in his room, he was explaining to us that he was going to knock out Tyson in memory of his mother, who had died, I think it was three weeks before. Anyway, he tried to convince us he was going to knock him out. I remember he was very being English gentleman. We didn't take the mickey out of him or we just listened to what he had to say. But when we got outside the room, most of us burst out laughing. Get him. He showed how sincere he was. I mean, one of the things that sticks out in my mind of that fight, and the reason I picked it was because it was historic. It is considered the greatest upset in heavyweight history of the heavyweight division. It was a pretty good fight anyway. And then, as you know, he knocked Douglas down. And but the thing that sticks in my mind more than anything else was when Tyson was on the canvas being counted out and the gunshot had come out of his mouth. And with his glove fist, he was trying it was an instinct to pick up the gun short and put it back in his mouth. I don't know if you remember the picture. Half of it was in and half of it was out when the referee yeah. went to 10. That's what sticks in my mind above everything else in that fight. It was, I don't know, it seemed to be poetic, if you like. Then, you know, the instincts of a fighter get the gun short back in his mouth. Yeah. And a bully, I suppose, getting his comeuppance as well, kind of like Foreman uh, 16 years previously, too. Uh, yeah, I mean, but, you know, he did take his lumps in that fight, mm. and he did also against Holyfield, their first fight. He got a terrible hiding. And don't forget, against Leonard Lewis as well, he didn't quit. He was genuinely beaten up. Um, he didn't quit. Years later, when you were a Hall of Fame elector, you didn't, you chose not to vote for Mike Tyson into the Hall of Fame. This is 2010. No, I was, uh, I'm on the um, voting panel, Uh, the Hall of Fame voting panel. And uh, when Tyson's name came up, I wrote a column saying, I can't vote for Mike because to be, a fighter in the Hall of Fame. You know, you should be chosen. I'm not saying a role model because this business about sports stars being role models, jars, and why should they be role models? You know, they should know how to behave. But why set them up as role models for the youth of the world? They're human beings like everybody else with palaces. Um, anyway, I just know that a man who gets in the ring acts like he's a thug in the street, didn't deserve to be in the Hall of Fame. And I wrote this poem, and I said so, and he was voted into the Hall of Fame. So be it. More people thought otherwise, and 
fool like me. And I think uh, Mike, Mike Tyson didn't hold it against me. And I said, um, one thing you want to do, you don't want to do with Mike Tyson is arguing with him about boxing. I've never known anybody with a greater knowledge. I did it once in Boston after he'd been in the, uh, the wrestling thing, which he got $3 million and five minutes work. In the hotel, we were chatting and we were talking about um, one of the heroes, my father's heroes, whom he sounded, Ted Kidberg, who had fought Tony Canzanieri for the World Lightweight title in the 1930s. And it was in New York. And I remember talking about it. And I said to him, oh, yeah. I said, that was a great fight in the garden, wasn't it? He said, it wasn't in the garden. Mm. Polo grounds. Oh, yeah. Well, you know. It was polo grounds. Yeah. Oh, anyway, and we went to the record books, and sure enough, it was in the polo grounds. Yeah. Yeah, now Tyson knows his stuff, doesn't he? Um, when it comes I mean, to boxing. His, his, uh, his knowledge of the history of boxing is, is quite astonishing. Tyson Fury, you're, um, the winner of your sixth best fight, uh, has a similar encyclopedic knowledge of heavyweight history and boxing history. Um, against Wilder for the third fight, he came in at a career heaviest. Uh, he was 19 stone plus, and he yeah. probably gave what you could call a career best performance. Now, you could split hairs. You could say beating Klitschko was better, but that was ultra defensive. And, he, you know, this was a marauding. He showed everything. He showed an ability to get up. He showed an ability to do tr- tremendous damage. Um, so, you know, he, he did quite well in his last fight. It's fair well, to say. You know, they say it was his heaviest ever, which is true. It's actually correct. But what's four pounds to a man who weighs nearly 20 stone anyway? I mean, you might as well say it's the same weight as it was in the second one, I mean, four pounds is not going to slow him up, is it? A man of that size. Um, I actually think his uh, second fight with Wilder was his better fight. Uh, because um, the third fight, he knew all about Wilder. He knew everything about him that he needed to know. Whereas the second fight, uh, after what happened the first time, when he very nearly got knocked out psychologically, it was a more difficult fight, I believe, than Tyson. The third fight, he knew he had the beating of the man anyway. I'm sure you discovered over the years that many boxers tend to take things personally. And when it's your job to write columns and to give your opinion, you, you, you run the risk of upsetting people. So you called, like, like you called the, um, Rumble in the Jungle for Ali and, you know, confounded the critics there. You did call, I think, Wilder Fury too for Wilder. You said he'd, he'd win that one, I think. Yeah. Do you find yourself thinking, you get a bit of blowback off the Furies? What are you talking about? Because that's, that's what, that's what, that's the game. Look, um, all I can say is over the years, and there's been more than 50 of them, I like to think I've been more right than wrong. But I've been wrong many times. And people say, you can't pick the winner of the two horseways. You know, I picked Leonard Sweet Hagler. Now, you know, I didn't just do a stick a pin in there. I just worked it out myself. You know, why I thought Leonard, you know, Leonard coming back off. I mean, to me, I'm asked this many times. Who is the best fighter you've ever seen? 
Nam Dukudai in the flesh. And people expect me to say, Muhammad Ali, the Bayletter to me is the greatest pound for pound fighter I've ever seen. He had everything. And he lost to Duran that first fight because he allowed Duran to get into his head. He insults to his wife. I mean, I can't repeat what he called her Juanita, his first wife, in Montreal during that fight week. And it got, and then he visited afterwards, got to him. So he decided to outmatch her, the macho man, and fight Duran's fight, which he never did the second time. And so, um, you know, the, the reasons why I pick fights, and like I say, I like to think I'll be more right than wrong. But I don't mind being wrong as long as they're for the right reasons. And the one mistake I made when I allowed, where is it? This, to, to, to outgo this, my heart, uh, I allowed my heart to you know, rule my head, was when Ali Ford formed, that's uh, right, not Ali Ford, um, Holmes, Larry Holmes, yeah. And I was sucking into it a lot by Angelo Dundee. I couldn't bring myself to think that our lady moves to Holmes. And you saw him, and he looked immaculate. He looked brilliant shape. I didn't know he was taking dialysis to get his weight down, which is illegal. Um, and Angelo Dundee was telling me, or brainwashing me, if you like, into thinking that Ali was in great shape, you know, could go 20 rounds if he had to, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, it was professionally stupid to pick him to be Holmes. Well, and, and Angelo Dundee was such a motivator, he was able to convince Muhammad Ali to get up off his stool in the 15th round to go back out and face Joe Fraser. Uh, so the greatest motivator yeah. of all time, I think Bob Aaron yeah. called him. Yeah. And, uh, oh, anyway, I felt for it. Yeah. Uh, much to my shame, as a boxing rider, it was crazy. And uh, when you, you know, as I was watching the fight, you know, oh my goodness, poor Ollie. He was, you know, he was just, he just wasn't a shadow of himself. He was half a shadow of himself. And as think- Holmes, to me, arguably the third or first heavyweight ever. I suppose after uh, recent events, it's probably fair to say that Fury is the best British heavyweight of his generation. He's a a couple of shades ahead of Anthony Joshua, I'd say. I'd like to see him fight Lewis. I meant heavyweights. Yeah, sorry. And that's the question I was going to ask. Lewis against Tyson Fury. How do you think um, that would have panned out? I think Lennox, who had a great boxing brain, and I think Lennox may well have won on points. It okay. would have been close. And of course, yeah, but he was a very clever fighter, Lennox. Plus, in fact, he could bang a bit. I know he, he was knocked out twice, um, but he would have been 100% focused on Fury and he would have found a way, I think, to, to win all points. Yeah. Does, um, does the Joshua Klitschko fight figure in your kind of, I suppose, top yeah, 10 of heavyweight classes? That was a very exciting fight. I did write at the time in one of my after fight calls that it's the best heavyweight fight I've ever seen in, in this country. I haven't seen a better one than that. And I think uh, the, the modern day uh, 
Tyson Douglas has to be Anthony Joshua losing his crowns to uh, Andy Ruiz, like a late replacement in New York at three weeks' notice. And Ruiz knocks him out, puts him down several so, times. Yeah. Uh, and of course, um, well, uh, you know, I, I don't, uh, I don't know how best to say this without getting myself in uh, a libel suit. But um, I seem to think that uh, Joshua gave up his title rather too easily that night, if you know what I mean. Um, you know, he, he seemed to accept the defeat with a sort of shrug of his shoulders. Um, I felt he could have gone on in the middle of the had him up against the ropes and now he put his arm. I think he could have gone on, but didn't want to particularly go on that night. And the second fight, of course, showed you that, uh, you know, Joshua was a very cautious man. I mean, all he made sure was he just jabbed And Ruiz was an absolute disgrace that night when he was, when we knew it was big and fat, but he was gross. He hadn't trained. Very much like Douglas in his second fight with, um, Toy, in his first defense against Oldfield. He was over 18 stone, which he'd never been that big. He hadn't trained. He knew he was getting $24 million. That was good enough. Yeah, here we go. And I've, I've been world heavyweight champion, and that's yeah, probably for me enough I think, for me. No, he wasn't just world heavyweight champion. I beat the great Mike Tyson. Yeah. Um, do you think... Do you think uh, we'll, we'll leave the heavyweight in a second. Do you think Anthony Joshua is doing the right thing to rematch Alexander Usyk? Very much against him fighting. If I had anything to do with um, Josh, I would say, do not fight him again. I think the same thing will happen, but even worse, I think next time he could be stopped. You know, Music um, said something very significant at the end of the first fight, if you remember. He was talking about tactics, his tactics, and he said, I was told. Don't bother to knock him out. You remember him saying that? Don't bother to knock him out. No, I missed that Don't one. Don't bother to knock him out. He's called cool instead. Keep interest in the second fight. Which means to me to think that you said as well as if I wanted to, I could have done. You look at those last 30 seconds of the fight. Well, that's, that's right, yeah. Another 10 seconds of effort would have had to stop. Yeah, he granted him. He granted him some mercy and granted himself another amazing payday by yeah. getting back in the rematch. Which I agree. Right. I think you. I think you win as well. So now, what do you do? You don't fight. You seek again. So where does he go? What you see him be? Although he, he was humiliated by Louise and Yusuf, Fury and Joshua is still a fight. Today, it would sell out when we said In my opinion, there's a pride people in this country still want to see. So, my strategy I mean, I've never been a fight manager in my life, but my strategy would be don't fight music again, because the same thing has happened or even worse. Just sit back and wait to feel he has. Either done got rid of his mandatory and fought Yusuf 
nymphite and of Music and Fury, with all the titles on the line. Hopefully it will be Fury, because him and Joshua would be much better fight than Joshua and Music. That would be my idea. Yeah, I think I think I think you're. I I fully agree. Except I think there's a snag, and I don't think Joshua has the mentality that. He'll want to go in against Fury as a challenger. Uh, so there's a oh. there's already a power dynamic established in terms of money, prestige. Think, I'm the I'm the challenger. I think Fury would. So I think uh, Joshua would go in against Fury. The people who run him wouldn't. Yeah, they want him to have some silverware to go Fury into. Fury say, I want at least seventy five percent of everything that's going. Now twenty five percent of several millions. There's a lot of money. But the people who, the corporate people behind Joshua, they won't, they won't go for that. They might do something important. You never know. Yeah. But Fury do something important. I mean, he's got two promoters, Aaron and Frank Warren, who are, there's no shoes of too many in the business for those two. It's up here. I'll um we'll we'll park the heavyweights here now. I th- I just wonder one last thing. In when you were covering like the fight of the century, Thrill in Manila, you know, uh the rumble yeah, in the jungle, you know, did, did boxing reporters have to spend as much time discussing kind of internal boxing politics, fights, blitz, effectively acting like accountants as fight reporters have to these days? Because I find it just bothersome. Well, I I've maintained um that I will not bore anybody who reads me, whoever it is, one or two people, I will not bore them with boxing politics, which yeah, I find eternal. Right? So I like to work, write about personalities mm. or fights coming up or fights that have gone rather than give the alphabet soup bog my time. I mean, they're all as bad as each other. They're all in it for their uh, sanction fees. And in WBA, is the biggest disgrace out of them all. They invent titles. I think there's one division with about six champions. I just, it doesn't, to me, it's a big turn off. Yeah, no, I'm I... Gee, I was against, you know, the so-called good old days of eight weights and one champion for the simple reason some great fighters never got a shot at becoming a world champion they were elbowed out of it now who's the best middleweight who ever lived or let's say in our time Sugar Ray Robinson Marvin Hagler Carlos Monzon you talk to the late great Eddie Fouch who trained five World Heavyweight Champions, by the way, who I'd be glad to say was a friend of mine. And you say, who was the best heavyweight you'll ever lived? He said, Charlie Burley. Have you ever heard of Charlie Burley? Heard of him, yeah. Well, he's in the Hall of Fame. Not only did he not win a world title, he never fought a world title because nobody would go anywhere near him. He was that good. He was out of Philadelphia. He, you look at his record, and he lost 20 odd fights. So how can that man be a great fighter? Because he had to fight 
light heavyweights and heavyweights to earn a living, because none of the middleweights were in. So, and I think I was boxing, thankfully, as a matter of opinion. Um, as I said to you, um, who was great? Carlos Monzon. I went to see Monzon fight Valdez in Monte Carlo. It was his last fight. Now, Monzon was a, a, a freak of nature. He was over six foot tall, huge shoulders, and he made 11 seats again and again and again. And we were talking to him through an interpreter before his second return fight with Valdez. And he got very annoyed that somebody brought up through the right moment. And he said, why is he considered such a great fighter at middleweight? He said, he got me five times the middleweight champion. He said, I'm the world middleweight champion. I've defended it 16 times. I've never been beaten. And yet, I'm not considered as one of the, as the all-time great middleweight. Yeah, the point. It certainly did. But it's, we'll never get to see them, these mythical matchups. And uh, unfortunately not. But hopefully all we can hope for is the best to fight the best. And, and with that said, maybe one day we'll get to see Tyson Fury against Alexander Usyk because that's the, the top two. And like you say, let Anthony Joshua take a, take a back seat. I do see them. I mean, I would, if you ask me now, who I think would win, I think uh, Fury would be them. Um, Pure, uh, because Pure is not a boxing brain. And he wouldn't do what Joshua would do. You know, try and outbox the boxer. Yeah. He would lay, he would lay all over him. He would bully him and shove him and push him and tie him out. Yeah, wrestle him, pop a shoulder, hit him in close, hit him from far. Yeah, do everything to frustrate him, hurt him. And he's just a bigger man by three plus stones as well. So it's, it's, well, uh, four stone heavier and six inches taller. That's why. Yeah, Marciano, the great Rocky Marciano, in my, my money, in his era, he was great, but he cannot be considered um, one of the all-time great heavyweights for me. He was too small. Yeah, he just wouldn't. People, people don't realize when he won heavyweight championship in the world against Jersey Joe Walker, who was arguably in his 40s, although he was now his 37. Marciano's weight, I know you probably know what he weighed. I bet people will be surprised to learn. He wasn't even a cruiserweight. He was 13 stone, 2 pounds. When he won the heavyweight championship of the world. Now, you put him against Tyson Fury. You give him 6 stone and 8 inches away. I mean, physically impossible. Yeah, yeah, no, it's that's it's not happening. Um, Colin Hart, it's been absolutely fantastic to talk to you about your top six heavyweight classics. At number six, Deontay Wilder losing to Tyson Fury there, and we've had a famous top five as well. Um, on the Rocky Road, it's been an honor to, to talk to you. 